Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. I know it's too early, but Happy New Year, Blessed New Year, all of those good things, yeah? Because I'm not planning to be awake when the actual New Year occurs. That's why I'm really grateful for New York. London, London, even better, even better. Eight hours, yes. <clears throat> Shout out to London. Um, I saw that reading plan and I thought, holy cow, I am so old. I cannot read that even with my glasses. It's, it's, um, but anyway. Um, usually, on, you know, when I am invited to do this in between... Um, Sunday. I like to kind of make it something a little fun and, and uh, play with it a little bit. Um, and as I prayed into what to do this uh, week, um, I was directed to something maybe a little heavier, a little more serious, a little more focused than I would normally do. So kind of bear with me if you don't mind. This is a journey that I've been on. Uh, in this last uh, season, and uh, just invite you to sh- join join in. The question that I've been wrestling with is, you know, you, you, you sit with the celebration, right, of, of Jesus' birth, incarnation, God with us. And this week I want to ask, well, so what? Uh, what, what difference does that actually make now that the presents are all you know, kind of trashed or the kids have really preferred the cardboard box like our kids did. Uh, or or maybe, I don't know, maybe the, uh, we, we bought our tree late this year um, and, and got it in the water and within three days the thing was bone dry. It was like we were afraid to put the lights on for the fear that it would, you know, and in fact, lights were the only thing we got on it because we were so late on the thing, we decorated with Christmas cards from other people. Um, it was one of, any, anybody else feels like that? It's just like the, this, the years just go faster and faster. It's like the end of the toilet paper roll, you know? You just, <laughs> at the beginning, it's coming off at a reasonable, but then it just kind of flies by. It is, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like the older you get, you just it just goes right. And this year has been a fabulous year. Seventeen was really good for us, for like many of you, in in some ways and really hard in other ways. Um, our youngest son got married this past year, and our oldest son and his wife are having our first grandchild next year. Um, and and right in this in this life happening moment you know you you think through well, well okay yeah hurry up jesus be born okay now let's move on to to next and um i found myself in my spiritual direction in my own journey using language like when people are talking about hard things or good things remember to invite jesus into it Right, invite Jesus into it, and that language has been helpful for me over the last few years. But I've realized that if the incarnation is true, we don't have to do that. 
If it is true that God has been born to be with us and for us, we don't need to invite Jesus into anything. He's already present. So what am I really trying to get at when I use that language? Because I don't think it's bad language. I just think it's theologically inept. What I'm really trying to get at is I need to show up in my own life because Jesus is already there. That the only life, and you've used this language before, but it has begun to kind of bubble up for me. The only life in which I will ever meet God is my life right now. There is no future with God. There is no past with God. That's why worry is off the table and regret is off the table. There's only right now. So if I don't show up in my own life right now, right? If I'm living in the past with regret, I don't show up in the present. If I'm living in the future with worry I don't, or, or expectation, I don't show up in the present right now, which is the only place I will ever meet God. I'm not going to meet him in the expectations of the future. And he's not going to meet me in the regrets of the past or the triumphs of the past. How many times have the successes of the past ruined us for what God is doing in the present? Yeah? So I've been, I've been playing with this and, and thinking about this. And the text that I want to use to anchor our reflections this morning is um, one that um, uh, has, has come alive to me in some new ways. It's very, very familiar. There is no, it's a Christmas text in many ways, but I want to go beyond where I usually go in the reading of this. We begin with this phrase, it's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just a quick word here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any of these, but I just want to underline a couple of things. First of all, remember this this is John's... Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1 begins in the beginning. God said, well, this is what God said. This is the word that God spoke, the outcome of which was light. God said, let there be light. The word that was spoken was, if I can use this language, Jesus. That same word then was incarnate in Mary's little boy. Does that make sense? That's what John's doing there. He wants us to get the ridiculousness of this notion, but the truth of it. Now, that means that everything that exists, including all of us sitting here today, exists as a result of the word that was spoken, the let it be that was spoken. That means if John is to be believed, if Moses is to be believed, and I think they are, that you here today are held together by that same word that was incarnate as Mary's little boy. 
You can't be closer to Jesus than he is to you already. You live, Paul says, and move and have your very existence in him. In him was life. Whose life? Yours. The very fact that you and I are alive requires, if John is saying something important here, and I think he is, requires us to acknowledge that we can't be closer to Jesus than we already are. He can't be closer to us than he already is. We are held together. Paul plays with this in Ephesians and Colossians. If he were to stop thinking of you, you would cease to exist. You are held together by his word, by him, by his thought of you, right? Now, whether you acknowledge, whether we acknowledge that or not is not the point. I just want to try and lay the foundation for what John does next. Begins verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone then was coming into the world. So here he differentiates himself from the word which he has spoken that brings it into creation, right? And now he himself differentiates from that creation still held together by the word that he is, and he enters into that. He differentiates and objectifies himself so he can enter it as a person. Notice why. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to everyone who received him, to everyone who acknowledged him, to everyone who believed into his name, into the reality that he represented, notice this is the point, he gave the right to then become the children of God. So the incarnation is not just about a Snapchat moment in Bethlehem. Wasn't that cute? It was the pivot point of the entire universe vis-a-vis the human race. He came into the world so that we who were held together by him could in a moment objectively recognize him as other than ourselves who were held together by him And in that recognition, we could become what he was. We could become the children of God. How did it happen that we had gotten lost in the dark? Well, the whole Genesis 3 narrative is the story of us forgetting who we are. It's the story of us having been born to be the very image of God, choosing instead to be created in our own image and then to project on God Our image. God created us in his image, and we have been returning the favor ever since. Right? So Jesus, in order, you see what I mean? This isn't a typical New Year's. This is, this is my, my head is, anybody else in this? And and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I wish I could say I have it nicely dialed in, and I just don't. This is, you're joining me partway through the journey. Um, because my prayer as I headed into the new year was, Lord, I want to be more like you. And I heard back, do you really? (laughs) 
Because what happens is I think being more like Jesus will be somebody will be being somebody other than who I am. He came differentiated from the world which existed by his very word. He came objectively into the world so that you could become more fully yourself. You will never be like Jesus by becoming somebody else. You will only be like Jesus as you become more fully you. He gave you as you are, warts and all, wonder and all, the ability to become what you actually are, the children of God. That's what incarnation is about. That's why, that's why the hallmarking, the, 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 the lifetime movie version of, 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 of Christmas isn't satisfying. Because we can pack the the baby and the manger and the angels and the donkeys and the sheep all the way in their little boxes and put them in a shelf. And the incarnation, the reality of God became flesh and dwelt among us is lost. So John wants us to, he he pummels us with this, this, this deep understanding. Please notice here, this is so far. From Jesus came to save us from our sins. It includes that, yes. But getting us to not sin is only getting us to zero. If we stop sinning, we've still not become anything. We've just stopped the patterns of self-destruction that disable our ability to be ourselves. Sin is no longer a problem with God because of what Jesus has done. You are reconciled to God. Are you now reconciled also then to yourself? Because what sin is, is self-destruction. It disables us. We fall short of the glory of God that we are. So here he pushes us on this. He says, um, Jesus came not just to save us from our sins, but to teach us how to actually live. To live our own lives. He doesn't want you to live his life. He got that down pretty, pretty well. But he does want you to live your life because he only has one of you. And if you, as part of the image of God, don't show up for work as fully yourself, empowered by the same spirit that empowered him, then the image of God is compromised. So when we pray in Long Beach, as it is in heaven... What we are praying at some level is, Lord, help me to show up in my own life and in the power of your spirit, be fully myself without self-destructive patterns and behaviors that disable my participation with you and what you're doing. It's faster to say, thy kingdom come. But that's what it means. Right? Right? So here he goes on and says to teach us how to live uh, and to be who we are, eternal life then. He's going to say in chapter 17, verse 3, listen to this, eternal life is to know him. So when he talks about believing into him in this passage of scripture, 
what he's after here is this, is this stepping into this relational uh, knowing of him, this not knowing about him, not memorizing the scriptures that relate to him, not writing things down when he says them, not studying his words, all those, those all might become means by which we know him, by which we enter into relationship with him, but he will not be satisfied, he's going to get into this in a minute, he will not be satisfied if believing things about him does not generate into knowing him into a relational connection with him, into the, into the nits and grits of life with him. For some of you, you have been invited in this last year into some deep and some dark places of your own journey. Why? Because you did something wrong? No, because this is what following Jesus looks like for you right now. If you can't meet him in the dark places, you will never know him and recognize him in the light places. This is why he says, I come to teach you your own life. I don't want you to mimic my life. I want you to learn to live your life as I would if I were you. That's what it means to know him, to invite him into this. So when I asked him, I want, Lord, to become more like you. I want to grow to know you more. And I heard him say, oh, really? Do you really? What I understood him finally to say is, You're coming to me to save you from yourself. I don't want to do that. I want to give you yourself. So, we believe into him so that we can learn to live our life. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh. He made his dwelling. Boy, that's high-pitched. How do such little... And anyway, okay, so the word became flesh. And by the way, no worries, that's fine. I'm good. And, uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, settled down, made his home among us. And we have seen, we have beheld, we have entered into his glory, the glory of the one and the only son, the one, in other words, who got humanity right who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Those words that, that, that translate to mean everything that made God, God, was present in Jesus. Grace and truth are the English translations of the Greek words that are translating the Hebrew concepts, chesed and chemet, which are God's kind of signature characteristics in Exodus chapter three, uh, 32 and 33. So, It is this deep knowing that surpasses observation and objectivity. He didn't didn't become flesh so we could take pictures and snap selfies with him. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He got his fingernails dirty in the dirt of our lives so that we could learn what it would look like to be the image of God that we were created to be in our marriages, in our singleness, in our parenting, in our entering a line of code, in our teaching our preschool class. That's what it means to him to become incarnated. What what is it that you do? I love that Jesus came at the lowest social echelon of his culture. He didn't come as a king in a throne. He came as a stonemason. He came as a common blue-collar ordinary worker. He came as a plumber, as an electrician, as a ditch digger. 
He came as a caretaker so that everybody at every level could identify with him and he with them. Learning how to do their lives, learning how to do their job as he would if he were them. So uh, verse 16, then out of his fullness, we have all received grace, grace upon grace, already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, the presence of God, Perfect humanity came through Jesus Christ. Nobody's seen God. But the only and one true Son who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I want to stop here for just a second. This is unrelated to my sermon, but I felt I needed to say it. If you have problems with the God of the Old Testament, Pay attention to how Jesus unpacks him. See the God of the Old Testament through the lens of what Jesus' life was about. Jesus is the one who unpacked him. Jesus is the one who exegeted the God of the Old Testament perfectly. Don't know why I said that, but there you go. He's the one who has made him known. In Jesus, then, we know the Father and that universal quest that we are built for, like, like iron filings shaping themselves around that bar magnet in fifth grade science. Remember? Anybody else do that? Nobody did that? What is education coming to? <laughs> Any, but, but can you all, maybe you saw it on Bill Nye. I don't know, right? Where, where they have a bar magnet, right? And you sprinkle the iron filings and shake it and it aligns itself on the radians of the magnet. Is everybody on track with me now? That illustration took a whole lot longer than I thought it was going to. Anyway, our hearts are built to align themselves around the reality of a creator God, of love, of a love-soaked universe. And as we align ourselves around that, as we come into alignment with that, as we become more fully ourselves, we understand this is what we're built for, that universal quest, that longing for meaning and significance and value and worth that presses us to faith, that presses us to worship, even though we aren't sure exactly what it is that we worship. That presses people all over the... As part of evolutionary theory, there's a whole development on the rise of spirituality. And what we're discovering in the earliest, earliest, earliest records we have of humankind on earth are objects of worship, places of worship, sacred moments of worship. Some of the earliest cave drawings are not objectifications of, mod, of life lived by the cave dwellers but in fact are now being re-examined as being in, all, over, all over the world, all over the world, in caves everywhere, Indonesia, Africa, Asia, North America, everywhere that humanity sprung up, the longing for worship occurs. The objects of worship occur. The places of worship occur. Why? Because we are those magnetic filings that long for meaning, around a radium that is larger than ourselves. In fact, I have come to believe that atheism is a crutch for those who can't deal with the reality of God's existence. It pushes us 
So you can imagine, this is why he came. When after three and a half years of walking with his closest friends, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night before he died, this conversation took place. Verse 8 of chapter 14. Philip, one of the twelve, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You can hear the frustration in Jesus' voice. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after all this time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you then say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority. It's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. At the very least, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. But here is where it really gets interesting. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Remember, he's saying the stuff that I do, and, we've, and we're not talking the miraculous necessarily, although we include that, but, but in, in, included among that, the, what does it mean to be human? To be human means to be in God and God in us, as Jesus was. We are intended for this, this, this universe without differentiation, but with individuation. Those people who are believing in me, and he's going to unpack this in a minute, will do the, the works that I've been doing, even greater things, because I'm going to the Father. I will then do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. This isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. In Jesus' name is not a stamp you stick on your prayers to see that they're delivered. To pray in Jesus' name means to have been so framed by knowing him that you will pray what Jesus would pray. When I say in Jesus' name, what I'm saying is, I think this is what Jesus would ask for if Jesus were asking. How does this happen? He's going to give us strategies for this in the next chapter. Abide in my word. Let my words abide in you. That shapes your asking abiding shapes, all of those things. But just to, to, to make, why is this so important? Because you're created to be the image of God. He's got stuff for you to do. He's got a whole planet. Scratch that, a whole series of planets that need his image present to care for them. He needs us, if I can use this language without being misunderstood, to become what we were created to be. Jesus didn't come to save us simply from our sins. He came to enable us to become the children of God. And in that, so this is why incarnation is so important, right? This is why how I manage the stuff of my marriage matters. This is why how I parent matters. This is how I handle my sexuality matters. This is why how I handle my money matters. If you can't be trusted with little stuff like that, how in the world 
can be trusted with important things like imaging God. Do you see what he's after here? So he wants us to be shaped into his image so that we, like he, only asks what he sees the Father doing. I only do the things that I see the Father doing. I want to know him that well. Do you see? I want to learn him so that it, without even thinking about it, the muscle memory of my soul does what God is doing. I don't want him to bless my mess. I want to bless what he's doing. I want to partner in what he's doing. I want to recognize it when a strategic conversation is taking place. Why? Because this is the kingdom of God come in Long Beach as it is in heaven. Right? To, 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 it's not magic. But then he goes on and gives us this condition or this statement. If you love me, keep my commands. By the way, what's his command? Love one another. Love God. Love your neighbor as you If you love me, keep my commands. Not out of fear, but because you've aligned yourself in love. I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper, somebody to help you. He'll be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees or knows him. But you know him because he lives with you. He will be in you. So this way of love is the primary way of alignment in the deep personal presence of God with us. This is so countercultural, which is the only way to survive is defense, is, is, this, is this resistance. And Jesus suggests that there is another and better way. Obedience is to, to love is the primary way by which we will enter into knowing and following. And here's why I don't like this. I am called in obedience to the love of Christ for me to love others in the way that he loved me. And frankly, this is, this is just really hard. It's easy to love people who love me back. Jesus didn't love you when you loved him back. He loved you when you were hanging him on a cross as I did. He didn't love for outcomes. He loved because he's a lover. You really want to know Jesus? You really want more of Jesus? Fine. Because I realized after I'd prayed that, it's one of those prayers that you pray and three seconds later you realize, oh, I think I had my fingers crossed when I prayed that. Because you realize that the way that he trains us into loving him is to bring people into our lives who, like us, are difficult for others to love at times. Right? So that we can practice getting good at loving people without outcomes, without promise, without guarantee, as a way of training ourselves into becoming a certain kind of person who can actually be useful. If we only love our friends, we're not useful for the kingdom's coming. I need you to be perfect, he says, as your father is. He makes the rain fall on the good and the bad. 
I want you all to be really good at loving people who are difficult to love, people who think of themselves as your enemy. You don't get to think of them as your enemy, but they might think of themselves as your enemy. You see the strategy here. Jesus is convinced that love is the only way to bring the universe back into alignment. That's why he says to us, I need you to, if you love me, for God's sake and yours, love one another. Love yourself. This is the strategy. It's the only strategy that actually works. This is why it's important for us to know that he is as close to us when we are sinning, when we are engaged in full-on self-destruction, as he is to us when we are worshiping. The difference is, here we're closer to him, we're present in the moment. Here, we are not even, because of the nature of sin, self-destruction, we are not even in our own right minds. Do you see what we're after here? He's in, we don't invite him into our sinfulness as a way of redeeming. He's already there. I want to start to notice where he's present in my patterns of self-destruction. Because if I don't learn to love the me that I don't love, how in God's name am I going to learn the you that I don't love? I will love you as I love myself, which is to say, with all kinds of asterisks, qualifications, and footnotes. Can I get a witness? I'll love me when. I'll love you when. Sorry, y'all don't get to do that. Do do you see where we're going here? Don't you wish this was a whole lot lighter and more fun for... Sorry, I got what I got. So we don't need to invite Jesus into this. He's close to us. We, we need to notice where he's already present while we are engaged in our patterns of self-destruction. That's what incarnation means. He has experienced every temptation that you have experienced. Every temptation that you... So when you are in the middle of full throes of self-destruction, whatever that looks like for you, he's there. Not only... Is he there because you're there? He's there before you even get there. This is the nature of incarnation. God with us wherever we are. He's, that's, how, that's how he knows the way out of the rabbit hole. That's how he knows how to get us home. Because he's already there in the patterns of self-destruction. When I, when I w- w- walk with men and women out of uh, uh, pornography and, and things of that nature, one of the things that we have to start to recognize, accept, and embrace, sorry, I should have warned you, um, is that Jesus is right there in the middle of that self-destructive pattern while we are engaged in the hunt, while we are engaged in the search, while we are engaged in the pattern of self, Jesus is already there, not, not, not approving, but present. That's how he can lead us out of self-destruction. And whether the addiction is alcohol or drugs or sexuality or spirituality, religion, work, whatever the addiction is, he's present in the pattern of self-destruction. So he can teach us. He loved us. He gave himself for us. Verse 21. 
whoever, oh, excuse me, verse 18, sorry. Um, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before the long. The world won't see me anymore, but you will still be able to see me. That's what incarnation means. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I'm in my Father. Listen to this. You are in me who is in my Father, and I in whom the Father dwells am in you. Do you see what he's doing here? He's inviting us into ourselves, into union with him who is in union with the Father. We're never, ever alone. So, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I too will love them. This isn't conditional. This is descriptive. And show myself to him. So we begin. We begin. So what does this say to us? I've got, Paul plays with this in Philippians, right? Those things I... Uh, uh, were gained to me those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. I'm just going to read this. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, positive things, negative things, triumphs, as well as challenges, failures. Count them all but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, may be found in him, not having a righteousness that is of my own, derived from obedience to the law, but rather through faith in Christ, Righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Why? That I may know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death so that I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. So even in the dark and difficult and painful places, he is present. We don't need to invite him into our pain. He is already there. What we do need is to invite us into our pain. How much of our behavior is pain avoidance? And when we avoid pain, we avoid the very presence of God because he is with us, not in the life that is without pain, but in the life that has pain. We invite him into our pleasure, not because he needs to be invited in. We are, in fact, inviting ourselves to become present to God who is with us in all things. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.